In this episode, we sit down with occupational therapist and sex educator Sarah Sproul to find out more about removing the taboo surrounding certain body parts and embracing the awkward when it comes to discussing sex and sexuality with our kids. Sarah, how do you like to be referred to or what's your official title, I suppose? I'm a sexuality educator and occupational therapist. Okay. So I think those two things are important for an audience because sometimes um, it's it's nice to have that health qualification bringing to talking with kids because, mm-hmm. you know, it can be you can be feel, feeling worried that are you doing the right thing or am I sexualizing my child in some way? So um, I usually use and it's a long title, but it no, is we're here fresh. Well, yeah. that's really, it's really interesting because, you know, parents of our generation with young kids are so on board with educating their kids about everything and um, including the how do I even say it See, this know? is actually the root of the issue <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know we're from the generation where we didn't get taught about sex in a kind of open easy way and we didn't learn about our body parts um and maybe until we were much later in life, you know, and it's and even to now kind of broach the subject with our own kids, even if we are feeling really open um, to it, it's how to do it. And, you know, we have these worries about like, what if we're doing it wrong? What if what if like um, we say the wrong thing or, you know, Which what I have to say is how I feel about most things in parenting. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, so do I. So nothing new you there. Know, it's not just about body parts. But, yeah, but we would love you, Sarah, just to. Give us some guidance as parents as to how to approach the subject with our kids when. And, um, you know, I think we need to be put at ease a bit. Yeah, so when is actually a really good starting yeah. point. Is, is, there a, is any age too young? Like how young is too young? Is your child restless this winter? If so, then try using a soothing Calpol vapor plug and nightlight an electrical plug-in device that emits lavender and chamomile vapors to soothe and comfort babies and children, helping to promote clear and easy breathing for up to eight hours. The Calpol Night Vapor Plug and Nightlight is suitable for children from three months. Calpol Vapor Plug and Nightlight is an electrical device and non-medicine. Always read the label. This is one of the most common questions I get. Like, what age should I be starting? And... um, Oftentimes, if I'm doing a presentation, I'll bring up a slide that actually says from zero to 77. Like, and I've picked 77 out of thin air because I think, well, most of us may not be around after our kids are 77. So essentially, once we realise that it's an important thing to do, that's when we start taking action on it. Um, commonly, your listeners might think that maybe it's better to wait till our kids are seven or eight or nine and 10, somewhere where they're they're a little bit older and maybe the, their body is starting to move towards puberty. So that would be the time you'd start talking. And oftentimes the thing that holds us back will be, like we've said, the fear of getting it wrong, mm-hmm. the worry about what other parents will think yeah. and whether our child's going to tell other people's kids and then what will happen next. And, um, and maybe when our kids are a little bit older, then the worry that we're going to cause some embarrassment and therefore we're going to damage our connection with them in some way. And though when, when you sort of hear all those things listed out, it's like, well, it makes absolute sense why it would be complicated yeah. to start these off the bat. But um, I think about that part of raising a child, their, their sexual self, um, just like any, it's like any other part of our children, like 
are they getting enough vegetables? Are they getting enough exercise? What's their screen time like? It's another part of um, ensuring that they're sort of well-rounded and healthy. And when I say well-rounded and healthy, I hear that and I'm like, oh, it's such a huge um, like pressure mm-hmm. on parents, isn't it, to raise a well-rounded, healthy, consensual, uh, respectful confident kid Um, so let's just sort of park that for the moment and say no one is expecting anything to be perfect but how what would it look like for us to just do small little changes from what we had growing up so what could it look like if something is just a little bit different from what sitting at this table had when we were small yeah I suppose that's actually even interesting in my own situation because I have my eldest is a girl she's three and my youngest is a boy he's actually one um and uh even how you know you refer to their body parts is so interesting because not even like me personally but just in general so you know when my son I suppose like found his willy mm-hmm. um and I'm even saying that with a bit of a like oh I'm really saying something naughty um it was nearly like, go on, you know, you, you little rogue, like there he goes kind of thing. And it was nearly celebratory. And then I suppose with my daughter, I don't do this, but there is a kind of a thing with girls where it's like, don't be touching yourself. Mm. And I think that's so deeply ingrained in us um, that, you know, you're already like you're, little yeah. girls are already made to know from the or made to think from the get go that doing that is wrong. Yeah, and I I'm really don't want to put that on my daughter, but it's like my shame. I'm somehow projecting that onto her, and it's like, how do you break that cycle? I suppose. Yeah, and I and wh- what you're describing there is something that's coming up in our parenting that is a reflection of a wider culture, that the sexual the women and their sexuality, mothers and their sexuality, um, teenage girls and their sexuality. Like how different does the world or the culture that we live in um, view that sort of thing? How safe do we feel thinking about teenage girls exploring their sexuality and and um, having a, a starting a sexual relationship, a consensual sexual relationship with a peer like there's a lot of fear around that whereas if we're thinking about the lads that we're raising how how different that is and look there are some practical reasons why that is like the impact of um, consensual difficulties or um, you know non-safe sexual practices who's going to get pregnant and who's going to be sort of managing the implication of that in their life and at the same time the impact of trying to protect and maybe by being a little bit shameful or being being quieter about a vulva than a penis, um, the impact of that is far-reaching in terms of sexual confidence in the future. So when we're looking at our small children and they have a vulva on their body and and um, what, what is it possible to think about that if I can create a celebration around that part of their body, just like you mentioned so beautifully about like, yeah, that's your your penis, come on, you know, put your undies back on sort of thing, that we are planting seeds for confidence and um, an ability to speak up for themselves in the future in in um, in adult relationships. And, and I think when I think about that, when my parent, when my kids were small, like I've got an 18 year old, a 16 year old, a 14 year old now, so I'm sort of toward the other end. It was that sort of understanding that the small seeds that I'm planting now, they have a huge far reaching 
effect. And um, and so and that's why a podcast like this is so great because um, it's an encouragement to say, you know, yes, we feel like that because the culture around us has taught us that. But um, just by using uh, the word vulva and putting on an excited face and saying, yes, doesn't that part of your body feel nice? Aren't we lucky to have that part of on our body? Um, and now we wash our hands before we eat our food, you yeah. know, and just be really sort of just so you basic would about you it. would recommend or you would just say, listen, just use those body part words from the get go. You know, there's no need to use little nicknames and pet names. Just be like, yeah, it's your vulva. Same way as, this, you know, it's your toe or your elbow. There's so many good reasons to be using language like that. One of them is for our own benefit. Um, I remember my first newborn baby and I changing that first nappy you remember like the shock of changing that first nappy I'm sort of like what <laughs> yeah. the heck is going on here I'm responsible for someone else's genitals oh, nobody yeah. told me where was the chapter in the par- in the pregnancy book about that and um sort of wiping and cleaning and putting a new nappy on and sort of just the enormity of the responsibility sort of hit me now she did not know that I was sort of like learning this new part. And so that is the perfect time to practice for ourselves to use the language. So when our child has no idea what we're saying and we're using that mothering voice, you know, that that everyone talks about to keep our child sort of calm and let them know that we're there and I, like I'm lowering my voice now. Everybody knows how to do it right. But you can say, um, you're changing nappy and now I'm using the word vulva because I have no clue about that word and no one has ever used it for me. But I'm just going to keep using it, vulva. I'm wiping your vulva now and I'm practicing using the word so that when you get a bit older, um, I don't have the squicks about mm-hmm. about saying it, you know. So not only are we giving them the benefit of um, modeling what talking about those body parts feels like in everyday life we're um, giving ourselves the chance to practice them before it becomes super important Mm. so I suppose like I would always say to my daughter like I'm actually very prescriptive and or descriptive I'm like you can touch your front bum but not your back bum and and to me I felt like I was very progressive saying that um but obviously I don't use the word vulva because to me I'm like it's adding more complexity to the issue than there needs to be but is that maybe the wrong am I over analyzing that or am I putting something on that that isn't even there well see when we think about like it's such a an interesting idea complexity right that we're making something complex but in the same way that I had in we have you probably in your house too have a number of board books that uh, talk about the parts of the face Mm -hmm. like this is the eye this is the nose this is the mouth but it's whole, the whole face. So the face is the simple concept, but we're talking about these small parts and we don't think they're complex because they're there and we're socialized to understand that, yeah, kids need to know about their eye and their nose and their mouth. It's it's the same for any part of the body re- really. And in fact, I would suggest that the genitals are even more important part um, to be clear about what they're called because the impact of not being able to name your vulva or name your scrotum or your penis or whatever it is, there are implications around um, abuse prevention and um, an ability to speak up for for boundaries and needs. So um, that the idea that it's complicated is probably an idea that is from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And while we might rationalise it and say, yeah, it's complicated, we're trying to keep things simple in our parenting, there's probably an underlying belief um, 
negative belief around children and their genitals and their developing sexual self, which in the past, in every country, not just Ireland, like my accent is Australian, but I've lived here 21 years. So um, there is impacts on our parenting that we we don't know. We can't see how far back they go and how many generations of shame um, in our families there's been that, that sort of mean that we have difficulty using simple words like that because vulva is actually a really simple word. And do we need to attribute a function? So, you you know, if you're saying you use your eyes to see and my nose to smell and my legs to run, like when your child says, well, what do I use my vulva for? Like when, when what, what age do you say, you know, let's have the talk, you know? it's yeah, we, we are always looking for opportunities to have the talk because it's actually not a talk. It's a attitude of this part of our children's body is part of their day-to-day life. So if, for example, um, you know, you haven't been using the word vulva up until now and you realise that, um, oh, it's, it's actually important, uh, one of the things you can do is go home and say, I learned something new today. And that would be one of the strategies that we can use in so many parts of our conversations about sensitive things because it gives us an opportunity to start something with our kids so we can say I learned something new today there's a word vulva and and I haven't taught you what it is yet right and then say here's your vulva here and the things that it does is it allows your we or your pee or whatever word you use in your family to come out of your body and it feels nice to touch and um and then you know, when your kid is maybe interested, maybe three or four, you might also say, and it's also got to do with making babies or making new humans. And they may not even ask you a question after that. They might just run off and play Lego, but they might ask you a question. And, and that's where this whole, like, learning how to do this in a way that it's small little conversations. Yeah, um, and it doesn't come as a huge again. shock one day. I feel yeah. enlightened even just hearing that because I'm like, that actually just simplifies it so much. And you're, it and you're not, yeah, and you're not actually adding anything to it that is inappropriate. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's literally just saying, this is where this will, this is how you can help make a baby or, or like whatever. I'm obviously going to get it wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is, it's, and even like hearing you say it and it makes so much sense um, and it's so innocuous, you know, like, for my kind of preconceived notion that getting into it'd be opening a can of worms mm. like what are the worms the worms are actually like me having to like confront female sexuality mm-hmm. do you know it's like nearly like the mirroring thing where you're like seeing so much about yourself when you're trying to to help your kids um and if the, like if that part of the conversation is just boring to them or mm. complex too complex that they're just like Ugh. i mean mm. That's just another conversation for another day when they're older, when they can grasp it a bit more. I heard a story um, earlier in the week about uh, a mum who has a five-year-old who came to her and asked, mum, tell me about the planets. And they were like, I want to understand about the planets. 
So this particular person was, she stopped what she was doing. She turned around and said, you're right. Well, there's the sun and there's the, and then she saw a child sort of just drift off and said, actually, it's okay. And ran off to play. Right. (laughs) And that dynamic can happen in any conversations that we have with our children. And it's interesting that we might feel like if it happened when we were trying to explain like how a baby is made or um, the fact that your vulva is just for you, nobody else sort of touches it, that we might get this sort of feeling of, oh, I've done something wrong but we have done nothing wrong. This is the dynamic that plays out in parenting on all levels and all different topics. And I think we just might be hypersensitive to evidence that we're getting it wrong or we've started too early when the reality of it is every time we have a go at using a word or bringing something up, we have done the right thing. It does not matter what the outcome is. We have done the right thing by bringing it up and we're challenging shame and stigma when we do that. I think obviously what a lot of parents will be concerned about is um, especially with, like with little boys when they're involved. And it is that the, the question of, well, not consent, because, well, you know, there there some kids are always interested in that or they get to that age where, you know, you, you, you've all got through that um, stage or witnessed that stage of, you know, little kids pulling down their pants to see what they have under yeah. under there with with themselves you know that's that's not a new thing it's always no matter what you've been brought up to um call your body parts that's like always going to happen but the big issue around the huge conversation now is teaching the little boys to be respectful and uh to you know girls from the get-go and there's always that worry with that exploration that there's going to be, that there could potentially be um, more sinister issues there, I suppose. Yeah, I think what you're describing there is sort of, there are so many angles to it. But essentially, when we're raising small children, the idea we're trying to get across to children of all genders, not just one particular gender, is that um, that everyone has a right to their own their own body autonomy. Now, we don't use words like that, but your body is yours Mm -hmm. and um, you get to say what happens to it, Uh, your whole body, right? And particularly the the parts of your body that um, feel particularly sensitive. That's one way you could talk about genitals, you know, and you could frame the fact that um, genitals are just for us um, as they are very sensitive parts of our body. And so uh, we keep them just just for ourselves and when we are teaching body autonomy from a very young age we teach we don't just teach it around genitals we teach it to do with everything like um, getting in the bath putting on clothes we're constantly giving our child opportunities to practice making decisions about their body and also practice making dis- um, hearing someone else make a decision about their body and those that's the two parts of sort of consensual culture that we need to um, give our child examples of so it's not just about the decision making it's absolutely about um, um, practicing the respect while someone else is making a decision about the things they do and you can you can even do that in on play dates when kids are trying to work out what they want to play or someone snatched a toy off someone else, it's you, you're coming and you're going, remember, we all get to choose um, what we do for ourselves and what happens to ourselves. And so um, as as parents, when our kids are really small, we can start practicing using this, this consensual language around 
and choice and respect. As parents, should we be, you know, asking our children if it's okay, you know, to give them a kiss or, you know, even say, I'm going to change your nappy now? Like, can, should we be going to going through those motions of of making sure they know that they you know we're asking mm. it does, I don't know is that kind of no I feel like no, this is sense. well it makes sense but I feel like I have my children have absolutely no autonomy I'm like give me a kiss I'm give always me saying, a I'm, hug. I'm always like can't hug me yeah. <laughs> and then I'm so delighted when he does and it'll be clap I know I've actually taught Theo my one-year-old to give me a hug it's actually ridiculous That's like so he's only one though. and like if I'm hugging him I go can I have a hug and then he literally just like plops his head down Aww. it's so cute it's adorable and yeah. and I think it's, it's such a lovely conversation because we're talking about what our needs are as parents too yeah. mm. that actually parenting is a thankless job <laughs> so much of the time <laughs> I hear you right and those moments where we get to have those snuggles are so beautiful and they can be sort of almost like the reward for doing the really hard stuff and the being up at night and taking out the rubbish and the vomiting and the, you know, the teething and all that sort of thing so like it makes sense that we have needs and there are ways that we can um be clear that this is a need I have. I would love a hug from you. like, And it's sort of like an asking rather than uh, give me the hug or you need to. It's very subtle, yeah. but those small subtle differences is we're not denying that we um, don't have needs. We absolutely do have needs, but um, we can state them clearly as that. I have a need for a, for a hug. And what about like when just say the classic example when grandparents are involved and it's like, give your granny a kiss. And, you know, a lot of the time kids just don't want to, but that granny really wants that kiss and you're sort of trying to enable it to happen because, you know, like that's thinking, saying out loud, that seems a bit wrong mm. to be, you know, and facilitating. We, yes. That. And see, and the reason why that you can sense it's wrong is because if we take that same dynamic, someone wants a kiss and our kid doesn't want to give it to them and we add 12 years onto our kid's age and then someone wants our 14 year old to give them a kiss and we're trying to get it like we would never do that mm-hmm. and and what makes this difficult is that there the social pressure that us as parents face because um, we're sort of sandwiched in the middle it's an in-law or our own parent and we can see the hurt that they have and at the same time you know we're probably pretty clear that well if we had a choice our kids' bodily autonomy and creating skills so that when they're 14, they can absolutely speak up for the fact that they don't want to kiss someone or they know that they shouldn't be forcing someone else to kiss them. Like when we have that in our head, I think the the game changes in a sense and the enormity and the importance of it is clear. And, and what happens then is we need to take responsibility for how we feel and how we are, in a sense, people-pleasing if we are trying to get our kid to kiss our mum because we don't want to have to deal with our mum telling us that our kid isn't, you know, there's something wrong with them. Like yeah. they, they should be kissing their you know, granny. As affectionate as they should be. Right. When, and maybe comparing yeah. them to the cousins yeah. and they're left wanting <laughs> yeah. and nobody nobody likes hearing that. Well, I definitely don't like hearing no. that. So. so does it start kind of that young? Um, like I obviously was um, educated in the 90s in our like I was in primary school in the 90s 80s 90s um and 
there was no formal sex education until I was in sixth class and I was actually asking Miriam before we started recording if she'd heard of this lady called Angela McNamara I think she's kind of like modern Irish folklore she's kind of like an urban legend I don't know if she's still going today as a professional sex educator um I hope not because basically the whole education quote marks um was you're gonna wait till you get married before you have sex and like it was minimal um information like factual scientific information about kind of body parts or actually I think she did show us graphs and we all thought it was absolutely hilarious when we saw like a very like biological like outline of a penis um because we were like 12 so it was gas um but and I went to an all-girls school the whole way up so completely alien so did I um which I think that's a whole subject for another day (laughs) but um yeah, like it was, it was never ev- like a, a formal topic of conversation or, or taught in a way that wasn't tied into religion and shame and um, virginity and kind of keeping yourself pure. So, you know, that was kind of my childhood experience. Um, but if you're being open with your kids from a very young age, then when they do kind of get to their teen years or they kind of reach puberty, like is there evidence there to say that if if they kind of are taught bodily autonomy from a very young age, that it does kind of produce, I suppose, more confident girls in their own sexuality? Because I think, unfortunately, I feel like boys kind of, obviously consent is a massive issue that needs to be reinforced a lot more in Ireland and everywhere else. But girls, boys kind of get away with their sexuality. Like their sexuality is genuinely fine. Because it's like, it's it's out there already. Yeah. You know, it, it's so, it's physical and it's it's yeah. emotional. Whereas women, <laughs> yeah, we get the girls, deal. it's all yeah. internal. Inter- all, uh-huh. all of it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I, there, is, there are times when I go into schools and do exactly what Angela McNamara does in my own way, which is different but one of the questions that I have got on numerous occasions which has really changed my view of how boys are with their developing sexual self is um, this what if I don't know what to do what if I'm like what if the the girl wants to have sex with me and I don't know what to do and I and I don't know how to say no and I think sometimes um, it's it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there is complexity on both sides of this situation. And anyone who raises boys um, starts to realise, particularly if you have a girl and a boy, you start to realise very quickly that there is a lot of um, challenges and, um, and pain living in a culture that male sexuality is so, I'm going to say demonised because why not, let's, let's use it an emotive term, but that is seen as dangerous. And it's happened in my family too, where um, I have, when my boys were younger, I was grappling with this whole thing about the toxic masculinity of the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. And I will put up my hand and say, quite unfairly, I put a lot of the burden of repairing that on my young lads. Like, and I look back now and realize that um, that was an error that I made and that um, one of the, the way to because at the end of the day we're here because we want to raise kids who feel connected to us and can come to us and ask us questions and share their worries and fears so this conversation we're having is not actually about information giving to our kids what it's more about is creating connection 
And one of the ways we do that is by um, acknowledging that the world is a complex place. And we and, and this is a conversation you don't have with three and one year olds. So <laughs> I'm, I'm moving forward a bit. But just to, to let everyone understand that when our kids are young, we're laying the foundation for far more complicated conversations the older they get. And I'm talking like... Um, a 10 year old coming home and asking what rape is that will happen in your household and it you'll you'll be grateful for that opportunity because it shows you that your child knows they can come and talk to you about absolutely anything and now when I'm saying it to you now and and anyone listening to this will probably freaking out like what I, I wouldn't know what to do if my 10 year old asked me that question but this is the point this is why we're here when our kids are one and two and three because this is the time now where we start to develop the skills to be able to talk about complex things. And um, yeah, it makes so much sense. Yeah, like it really does. And is it is it just being as literal as possible? Is, is that your advice or is it totally subjective? To I, I, my advice is to notice the the worries and the fears, right, that are holding um, you back from speaking openly about body parts, about, you know, buying a book, uh, how babies are made and leaving it on the family bookshelf or on the coffee table or in the, the book box or whatever you have at home. Like bringing resources in that are part of everyday life. Maybe you have on the fridge, you can put on the fridge uh, like a line drawing of a body and it has the nose and the eyes and the hands and the feet and the, and the vulva or the penis, right? It's something as basic as that. And if those things aren't accessible to, to, to you know, you or me or whoever is parenting and raising this child, there is something deep inside that's holding us back. And it's not about the fact that this isn't age appropriate because here I am with a master's degree in sexuality studies telling you and everyone listening that it is age appropriate. So really what we're dealing with is all the lessons that we've picked up from the past that has programmed our body to feel like anything when we're talking about sensitive, complex sexual things with children is dangerous and threatening. Our body will respond as if it's dangerous and threatening. And that's why it's so difficult. But yeah, we did, um, Mary, you were saying it did it, you did it as well it, when I was in primary school, the Stay Safe program. Yeah. So obviously, um, you're nodding, so you obviously know as well, Sarah, which was like, if anyone touches you in your swimming togs area, that's what you have to be worried about. But basically everywhere else was fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like even at that age, you know, like not even wanting to talk about what's beneath your togs, yeah. you know. But like, I mean, I remember the Stay Safe program. I remember doing it. It was a good idea. It is like a good a, idea. Com- yeah. But like obviously done in a um, a way of the time to- of its time. And it was obviously fearful of... But yeah. revealing but too we much were because what was the that consequence? It was kind of funny, you know. Yeah. And you know, there, still back then we were sniggering about it rather than being like, yeah, okay, you know, taking it. But what you're saying um, about creating that open conversation, um, it kind of it reminds me of talking to a conversation we've had recently about talking to kids about war, because you know the Ukraine crisis is happening now and there's a lot happening in the news. It's everywhere. But there's a conversations coming up about what to tell children. And the main point of advice from experts is be as open as possible. Um, you control the conversation and you're there to support them. And it just 
kind of it makes sense to use that advice in from what you're talking about too it's it's the same thing and i think what's interesting about bringing up the stay safe program is that that stay safe program was taught in primary school but like conversate like it wasn't you weren't taught about genitals and other things in just a normal everyday way you were taught about it from the perspective of um, abuse prevention Mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden what's happening in that conversation is you're not just being taught abuse prevention but the only conversations that are happening at primary school level at that time and it's still now are that they're still teaching it the Stay Safe program is happening. It's, it's hugely updated. It's actually a really amazing program. It's abuse prevention. And so if um, we're doing abuse prevention, which is talking about sexuality, about negative and all the bad things happening, but we're not also talking about the fact that having a sexual self and the sexual parts of our body are wonderful and beautiful and um, they allow us to feel pleasure and um, it's great part of our body and magic things happen there because it's about making babies and um, and all this sort of thing if there's not a balance then what happens is exactly what we're talking about here at this table which is that fear and negativity around things related to sexual self and and so it's just the past being played out in the present in our parenting when we've got really small kids. And what's great about it is this conversation is happening and the awareness is the first step of being able to do things differently for the children that we are raising, which I get super excited about. Mm-hmm. Like there's, we're all raising kids here at this table and all of them, their life is going to be different from what we had growing up because we're starting to make changes and we're, um, we're sort of stopping a pattern of negativity that's probably been passed down through generations not because those adults raising those kids in the past didn't love them and love us they absolutely loved us to bits but more about how they were just doing the best they could with what they had at the time and it'll be a lot easier then for our kids to talk to their kids about it when the time comes if the world is still in existence (laughs) (laughs) at that point um but no it is it's it is so interesting i suppose because coming from like a very conservative family background where um sex would never have been spoken about openly in the home or body parts um and actually, I used to like rob, my Nana was like a voracious romantic novel reader. Um, and I used to rob her Penny Vincenzi books. I don't know if either of you are familiar, but it's just complete smut. And I used to rob them when I was like 14 or 15 and hide them from my mum that I was reading them. And then I went on to Jilly Cooper. So like I got all of my education from reading about oh like God. you know romps in a flipping stables and whatever I remember finding my mother's copy of the thorn birds oh I loved the and thorn reading birds. it in secret like because w- we had a bookshop beside the stairs so I would just like take it out from there every so often well like every day yeah. um, <laughs> and read a bit and then like put it back oh my god what an amazing book actually but yeah I'm gonna read that, that again me too that was a good, good, nice little sigue. <laughs> yeah. But that's again, that's again. I, I was reading it in secret. Yeah. Um, and my parents weren't aren't conservative. Um, they're liberal. Like I, I grew up in a quite a liberal home, but still, I think it's just it, again it was of the time. I was I grew up in Catholic education, all girls, primary and secondary. Um, I had good experience in school, but all, that part of the conversation, the sex ed, was kind of. They tried a bit, but it was, it, 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 it's 
you know, it's not what we're trying to do for our kids. And I think we're lucky because even though it's it's going to be hard for us because of where we're coming from. But that, that's why it's so great to have this guidance from you, Sarah, because obviously, as we were saying, we want to do this for our children, but we want to know the right way. Because we're the parents who want to know the right way to do it, our kids would probably be fine anyway. <laughs> Not fine, well, yeah, but as in they yeah. would probably subliminally or something kind of get more of an understanding about this topic than parents who just do not want to talk about it and do you know what I mean it's kind of like by osmosis nearly that the kids would pick up on it I think there are degrees there there are degrees of if you want to say success there's probably a better word than that but um um yeah there are there are families where the adults don't have the capacity to provide anything right and then there are the families where the intentions are there and at the same time there's the the feelings that we've been talking about in our body are holding us back from really speaking up and and using the words and and then there are the families where the parents who are raising those kids they grew up in ex- and I'm using explicit in a really positive way homes where sexuality was explicitly positive. So, you know, you'll hear people talk about the culture in um, Denmark or the Netherlands that they are ex- they are specifically taught there that sexuality is a healthy part of being human. Sometimes things go wrong with it, like consent violations or, um, you know, STIs or whatever that is. But just like our respiratory system and our digestive system, it's a neutral part of being human um, that has the capacity to do wonderful things. And and so you can see there the continuum between people who have not grown up in any sort of shame right back over here to people who are actively staying quiet. And then there's those of us in the middle who um, want to do the right thing and need the support and the guidance. And, and this that's the part of the conversation that we're having today. Um, and, and I suppose to remind ourselves that our default will always be to not say enough. That will always be the default. So in those moments when there's an opportunity to use a word or to bring up a conversation, know that the default will probably be, oh, no, I won't say anything. I've probably said too much. And that is never the right answer. There is always going to be more opportunities to speak up because our child needs to see over years and years that we will continually bring up these conversations so that they come to us with the hard questions or um, like I remember uh, getting a text message from one of my kids saying to me, mom, I just want to let you know that um, I'm being broken up with and I feel really upset and um, I just want to let you know and my heart my heart broke, but sh- they told me. Yeah. And I was able to prepare myself for when they got home. And it's sort of like you we earn that privilege to get that information. And while it may seem like when our children are small that there's a lot of time before they start getting independent, um, the days are long, but the years go fast. And so every day we have, every week we have is an opportunity to show our child over and over again that we are here for hard things, we use words that most other families won't use. We talk about things that most other families aren't talking about. And we're doing it with respect and we're doing it with love. Where where do you kind of um, stand on, you were just mentioning your daughter being broken up with, which obviously heartbreaking to get that message. But, you know, a friend of mine actually has um, her child was caught kissing another child in school 
and and they're very young I don't want to give it away who she is but um there was the children were kind of the children got into trouble because the the school said they weren't in trouble because of the kiss it was they they lied about it which I just thought was bananas because of course the child is going to lie if they think they're getting into trouble do you know what I mean it's like it's like did you do this and it's like no um but you know it's probably very like it was all very innocent so you know it like is it okay for a five-year-old to kiss another five-year-old like kids are going to do things like that um we talked earlier I think um before we started recording about show me mine I'll show you mine you show me yours that sort of like uh, what do you have under your underwear that is a developmentally normal activity because of the curiosity but we don't let it go we use it as an opportunity to again talk about bodily autonomy and what is appropriate and our genitals are just for us and we don't show other people right so these uh, kissing someone at school it's the same sort of thing it's a teaching opportunity and in the moment where we shame the behavior then we're losing a chance to um to teach lessons and the way children hear lessons from us is when we're open and interested and um, we want their involvement in it rather than didactically sort of like saying I know everything I'm the adult this is the way things are you know so creating um, the culture of, of curiosity and the idea that yeah it's lovely to be close to someone who we like I mean if if they were friends and if they weren't friends then there's another teaching opportunity you know so um, and I think the thing is uh, when we're parenting small children and the culture around us isn't up to speed with the importance of laying foundations really early then oftentimes we can feel like we're doing a little bit on our own because the structures that we um, that we respect and that we might defer to for other areas of our child's well-being like the reading and writing and arithmetic and sport and whatever are not at the cutting edge of what is the right thing to be doing and how are we raising kids with the skills to be able to slowly gain knowledge about consent on their own and so that is why another reason why it's a little bit hard for us at home and why communities like this that you're creating around this podcast can be so useful because what it does is it gathers parents of like values and so you don't feel so worried and anxious about speaking up and saying actually that was my kid my five-year-old kid who kissed whoever it was in the playground and um, I really need some help and you and you know when you have a community like that that you're not going to get shame you're going to get genuine genuine support which is how we make the world a better place but on the other side of things on this but on the same note there are going to be parents who are not on board like there are going to be parents who think that using the proper terms for body parts is wrong and that you should be you know maybe they see it as preserving innocence or something yeah and that if they you know they're in school your kids are in school together and your child is you know teaching them you know the word for penis and vulva and they don't want you to like how do you deal with that yeah um I have to tell you a quick story so um where I live in Dublin it's a little bit gritty and there was one day we were walking home from school and there was a used condom on the footpath and um we 
in my relationship, we were using condoms as our contraceptive method of choice. And so our kids knew what condoms were because they were in the bedside lockers and that was fine. And um, so we see the condom and one of my kids says to their friend, oh, that's gross. And the friend says, what's gross? And my, my kid says, there's a used condom on the ground. And the friend says, what's a condom? And my kid says, um, that's the thing you use to stop the sperms getting to the eggs. And the friend goes, all oh, right, and they walk off. And then the following day, knock on the door. Your, your child told my child what a condom was and I did not want to have that conversation for another three years and I'm really annoyed, right? In that moment when that's happening, we have an opportunity to choose how we react to it and what is actually the higher purpose of what's going on in the moment because is our higher purpose as parents to keep everyone around us happy or is our higher purpose actually to be doing what is best for our kid even if that means that we are having to deal with other people's frustration and anger and annoyance and the end of that story actually is great because two years after I got a phone call from that parent saying oh my next kid is only seven and actually I realized I need to have a lot of conversations so what books would you recommend and what you know so part of this is when we take a stand and we do something that not everyone else is doing is that we are um, changing culture and we are doing it ahead of the curve and what that means is we need to support ourselves. Uh, learning skills like how do we sit with someone when they're angry? That is a skill. You but know? how did you respond to that parent when they confronted you with it? And this is the skill, you see. So f the, the, I teach this in the, the Evolve School, which is my like nine-week program of learning all the skills to do this, right? So let's not pretend that uh, we can learn everything there is to learn in half an hour. But um, there, there are a few keys. One of them is to stay centered and know that we are doing the right thing for our family and we are, we are ahead of the curve. So that sort of sense of knowing that, yes, this has caused trouble and for my child, this has still been the right thing to do. And then to, um, to feed, feed back or reflect back the emotion that that parent is feeling. And, and this takes practice, but... Um, when that parent was saying things like, um, this was so wrong and I'm really upset about it, instead of saying, yeah, but I was doing the right thing for my child, we say, it's really hard when your kid hears something that you don't want them to hear, right? So I'm just reflecting back the lived experience of what it's like to be a parent and your kids found out something awful. And it's not about finding my corner. It's absolutely about hearing the other parent in their pain and frustration. This actually sounds a bit like all the child psychologists I follow on Instagram who do yes. like really nice reels about how to deal with a tantrum. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly the same. I feel your anger, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know, all these skills that we see on, on Instagram all the time, they are universally applicable for every single relationship, yeah. whether they're, you're looking at the relationship you have with your child relationship we have with your co-parent or another yeah. parent in your school community i'm it, thinking i need to use that with my husband a lot more <laughs> <laughs> and it saves the relationship too that person goes away feeling heard and understood yeah. like they haven't got what they want but they feel heard and understood and um and that's that that technique is i i consider it to be magic because the problem hasn't been solved but the relationship has sort of been saved in a sense. Yeah, there's an explanation. And um, yeah, I 
I think that yeah you're so right about that it does need to be learned and you know I, I think about myself flying off the handle so often because that's my personality I have a bit of a temper um luckily not with my son yet because uh, you know he's too cute uh even when he's he does things that I might not uh, appreciate but yeah um I think it's so you're so right that you do need to work on yourself a bit as well and it's important as a parent uh, to develop those skills when when what you want to do as a parent is to be the the best parent you can oh my god totally like parenting has given me such a different perspective on myself that yeah. I wasn't prepared for like I didn't think this was part of the deal me either <laughs> I, you know, and like the amount of self-reflection you go through is insane mm-hmm. and just even like thinking like you were saying about like I have a very short fuse and to learn patience has been incredibly difficult I'll be yeah. honest and like to try and keep a level head when I'm at like I even said this is terrible I even said to my daughter one day I was like I'm at the top of my level like my, I was yeah. like my level is up here and I'm at the top because I didn't know how else to explain like yeah. you better stop right now or I'm gonna lose it yeah. um but you know like it is so funny you're even saying that because that is part of it as well it's just kind of like seeing not your own faults but I suppose you know things that you need to work on yourself in order to deal with different situations and that coincides on what we're talking about now like our what we grew up with about sexuality and learning about it that we want to change when teaching our children is again something we need to think about and um discuss with our co-parent as well because you do need to be on the same level um god imagine if you know you wanted to teach all the the proper words and your your co-parent was like no it's a willy (laughs) but i think it's even interesting say for like a, a gender dynamic with um you know, I my, myself and my husband haven't even discussed it yet, but I'm sure when it boils down to it, well, the presumption I have at the moment is that when it boils down to it, I'll teach Isabel about her sexuality and about sex and whatever, and he'll teach Theo. You know what I mean? And I, I don't know why. Well, I do know why. Like, that's just a deeply ingrained thing that yeah. kind of, you know. I, I wouldn't really have any business talking to the lads yeah, about Yeah, where the reality know. is, wouldn't it be great if we were raising future adults who felt comfortable talking or speaking up about their sexual needs or the fact they need a, a tampon or something mm-hmm. to someone of the opposite gender or any other mm-hmm. gender. Yeah, and, and them that, all to feel comfortable in that situation. Oh. But like I've actually started to become very open about talking about periods and using the word period, even in the workplace. Like, and I know, well, not that we're in the workplace that often nowadays, but even I think it was like about a year or two ago, I just kind of said to myself, like, what am I whispering the word period for? And even, you know, like slipping my tampon up my sleeve. And like, it's so natural and normal and to kind of again kind of attach this shame to it is just ridiculous Mm -hmm. and and we can be talking about that with that is one of the topics actually of conversation you can have with really young kids because most of us don't get to be in the toilet on our own and so (laughs) if we are changing some sort of period product like it's a perfect opportunity to start um, reducing period stigma when you've got a two-year-old it doesn't matter what their gender is interesting I've actually hidden it that's because like I'm saying one thing but I'm actually doing the other so I'm like I use the word period and I'm like trying to shield my daughter from but scaring her yeah but that's to be honest I have I have yeah. done it like just you know changed period product in front of Bjorn because he's there and I have no other option like and I'm there a part of me is is trying to be a bit hidden but other part of me especially when he's like doing something which he always 
does. I can't, you know, I just have to get it done with. And then um, what would you say to him if he asked you what it was? I'd just say that's period. And then if he wanted to me to expand, I would the best way I could. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not trying to test you. I'm just like, what would you say? No, no, that because, <laughs> you know, because it, this is a recent thing. And I because I've noticed him kind of noticing and um, he, he doesn't have the capacity to ask me now. He's only 18 months. But if he did ask, I would say, oh, that's, you know, that's a period. And if he probed me a bit more, I would try and explain. Like, it, I think it's a bit complex when he still doesn't, you know, he's still poos in his nappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How can he appreciate okay. it? But um, yeah, I think I, I wouldn't be uncomfortable explaining that. It's funny because I feel like I'm a bit like I don't want to tell her what it is in case A, it scares her. Or B, and we're having a lot of potty training issues, so I don't want to add something else oh, into the yeah, mix. Yeah. Um, and B, I suppose I don't want to be like, this ha- only happens to girls. Because I even that's something that I'm like, I don't want her to f- start seeing the differences. Do you know what I mean? And th- like the, any kind of perceived negativity about being female. You know, this is really interesting because there are ways that, see, what, what's happening in this conversation is we are bringing our negative bias already mm-hmm. to periods. We're assuming that it might be negative. And yeah. when we can look at it as, so I, I took up talk about um, period blood is sort of magic blood. You can, t- this is magic. So you don't even wait for a child to ask you. And so you can say, oh, um, this is one of the days where I'm doing something amazing with the magic blood, right? And a child, once they're interested, they'll go, what, what magic? And you can start talking about, this is magic. My body makes this magic blood. And um, if I need to, I can make a new baby. And this is part of what is needed to make a new baby. But if I don't make a new baby, then the blood, uh, the magic blood leaves my body and I, you know, catch it so it doesn't make a mess. And then next month I get fresh blood to see if I'd like to make a baby that time. You know, so it's sort of like just completely like switching it around. And how could we use the voice that we might use for baby shark and talk about magic blood? Right? I had a story. Um, someone said to me that they were they were showing their kid what appeared was and talking about it very small and baby shark was on in the background and they heard their child later on um singing the baby shark song to magic blood do 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 magic blood you know it's sort of like we can bring these things into very child-friendly um aspects of parenting and um because our child has no expectations that it should be scary or or worrying they are a blank slate and um as long as we approach it with sort of a sort of an upbeat like happiness then um they get the information and they get modeled that this is part of what we talk about at home it's kind of like making i suppose it's the whole kind of premise of fairy tales or children's stories it's taking big issues and making them into more digestible yes. kind of stories for children yeah so i suppose on that note are there any books that you would recommend i suppose spanning from very early on to maybe kind of into primary school age children yes Um, There is an author called Corey Silverberg and um, they've written a book. There's two books. Um, Sex is a Funny Word is for kids around the age of seven and they have another one called, um, I think it's What Makes a Baby and it's really bright and colourful and has uh, just pictures of gender neutral 
people. It's essentially like a cartoon in a book. Um, and that's a really beautiful beginning. There's one uh, called uh, Vaginas and Periods 101, which has a little pop-up vulva, like it's a pop-up book with a little pop-up vulva, which is pretty awesome and I love. And it really actively works to sort of challenge that um, vulva shame and, and stigma that and so many of us carry. Do you teach it to boys as well? That's actually, yes. I forgot to ask you that. So yes. should we be teaching boys and girls the exact same information? Yes. Okay. Yeah particularly when they're small um, you know when they get older and um, maybe you've got one child who is going to get a period because they have a uterus and one child that isn't you can even still have conversations about um, period management then but the person who is never going to have one is less likely to be interested yeah. and the person who is will be more interested and that's just that's just natural so yeah absolutely we are treating all children the same when they're when they're younger and giving them as much information and chance to hear us talk about these things as we can okay well listen Sarah thank you so much I feel so much more educated and enlightened on the whole subject um from just speaking I feel to kind you of re- kind of ready now sort mm. of like I'm, I'm reassured okay with this. Yeah, yeah definitely yeah um but yeah thank you again Thanks and if so people much. want to follow you um what's your website and your Instagram um Instagram is I am Sarah Sproul and my website is sarahsproul.com Thanks so much for listening to this episode of A Little Birdie Told Me. If you enjoyed it, we have so many other amazing episodes for you to go back and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure to like us and hit subscribe. Don't forget to tune in again next time. Is your child restless this winter? If so, then try using a soothing Calpol vapor plug and nightlight, an electrical plug-in device that emits lavender and chamomile vapors to soothe and comfort babies and children helping to promote clear and easy breathing for up to eight hours. The nightlight emits a soft light to help comfort your child and guide you in the room so that you don't disturb your sleeping child. The Calpol Night Vapor Plug and Nightlight is suitable for children from three months. Calpol Vapor Plug and Nightlight is an electrical device and non-medicine. Always read the label.